is Comer Shenanigans, episode 604, A Conversation with Sean McKeever. Welcome to the Commerce Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 604. It's my conversation with Sean McKeever. I uh, really enjoyed this episode. I got to talk with Sean about his career in comics. Um, there's been so many great things he's written over the years, but uh, in particular, I've always been a huge fan of Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, as well as his work on the Gravity series, amongst many other things he did get to write. Um, so I was really excited to be able to sit down with Sean, talk about his career in comics, uh, and what's kind of going on, and what he's been working on in his new book, Outpost Zero. So I uh, hope you're really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, I do want to thank Green Meerkat from the uh, Marvel Masterworks Forum as he had uh, submitted a question, which we actually did, we did get to. Um, actually, he had two kind of uh, things in a post uh, that he wanted to incorporate or ask uh, Sean, so they both got discussed uh, at length with, uh, within the body of the episode. So thank you for, um, for definitely for asking the question, and we definitely uh, were able to cover off those t- uh, elements. Uh, you can email the show at comicshenanigans at gmail.com like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes you can also listen to us on Stitcher thanks again for uh, for downloading this episode and let's get right into the conversation with Sean McKeever Sean, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, how are you Adam? I'm doing well, I'm doing well from the, the metropolis of Toronto oh Toronto, I've always wanted to go you haven't been yet? No, no, I should go up to Fan Expo sometime. I was going to say, we, we, the Fan Expo never uh, cajoled you to come up? No, you know, uh, you know, uh, writers like me aren't, aren't a huge draw for those things, so I don't get invited to a ton of them. Oh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a shame for a lot of reasons, but that's... Uh, well, maybe one of these years I'll, I'll get up there. <laughs> well, before we... Uh, I, I like to kind of go through kind of a, a career sometimes and do a little bit of a retrospective, but before we can do any of that, we need to understand uh, where, where do you come from? Where does your, your kind of your love story with comic books start? Oh, man, my, uh, my love for comics started when I was three. Uh, my parents bought me an issue of Spidey Super Stories, Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I started reading that. Uh, actually, my parents would read it to me, um, and I'd keep asking what words were, and, you know, I really wanted to read it myself. Um, so I learned to re- read it in an early age, and, you know, I was reading Spidey Super Stories and then Amazing Spider-Man and then uh, Marvel Team-Up as well. Uh, and then, of course, Spectacular Spider-Man when that came out. I didn't really branch out outside of Spider-Man until you know, sometime in the mid eighties, um, like around the time of secret wars. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, in the seventies, I read a lot of Spider-Man. I read, uh, you know, the occasional gold key kind of books oh, yeah. and the, you know, Tom and Jerry hot stuff. Uh, you know, all the, all the various, um, like cartoon related, uh, books that were coming out back in those days. 
for sure. I remember uh, a couple years ago I was speaking with Peter Sanderson, who's obviously a noted historian of comics, and he was saying how a lot of people uh, used to kind of start with the funny animal comics and then they'd move on to superheroes generally, and that seemed to be a path for a lot of people for many, many years, while those were still more prevalent, which obviously they aren't quite as prevalent in North American comics anymore, although they still are in European comics, but the idea that the funny animals were kind of that, that entry level or some, something around that, that kind of style. Yeah, I think I think that you know that around you know I'm, I was born in '72, and I think I was at about the tail end of that. You know, um, uh, the market really uh, started to shift, um, and uh, and became very. And of course, in the '80s, then we had the uh, you know the advent of the of the direct market. You know, in the late '70s, going into the '80s, and then it became very superhero dominant. But but yeah, for me, it was you know it was something about Spider Man's costume when I was a kid, like. Um, you know, to hear my mom tell it, I, I was just trying to get this comic book, you know, and, and so she bought it for me. Um, you know, he just has that bright, colorful costume. Now, I, this is a question I don't know often ask, but like, how did your, your parents, like their parents obviously kind of start you on that journey and they kind of start getting you comics. Uh, how, you know, supportive were they of, you know, having a hobby that involved comic books? Yeah. So here's how supportive they were. Um, so, <laughs> So, uh, when I was eight years old, we moved up to, uh, to Northern Wisconsin. I grew up in, uh, around Milwaukee and then we moved up to Northern Wisconsin and my, my dad opened up a hardware and sporting goods store, um, uh, in this town of 1200 people. And, uh, like around 85 or 86, I think it was 86, um, the grocery store next door was, was throwing out a perfectly good magazine rack because they'd gotten new magazine racks so they had this four foot magazine rack and I was like a freshman in high school and I asked my parents I said well can I take that and start selling comic books in the store <laughs> and they said yes <laughs> and and until you know from from then until uh 96 97 when I moved to Ohio um I had a comic book store inside of a true value hardware store and, you know, it started with that four foot rack and then it expanded to like 250 square feet. And it was, you know, um, it was pretty full service for the early 90s boom period. Um, and I sold a fair amount of comics. I had people, you know, driving an hour away to come to my my little shop. And wow. it was uh, so, yeah, so they were they were pretty supportive on that end of it. And, you know, one of my favorite memories of my dad was um was the first time they ever bought me a direct subscription through Marvel to uh, to Amazing Spider-Man. And the first issue came in the mail, and my dad had this big grin. My dad's not into, was never into comics, and he never, like, you know, it wasn't, none of that stuff was his thing. He was, you know, hunting and fishing and, and drinking beer and, <laughs> you know, all the Northwoodsy kind of stuff. And um, But he had this big grin on his face because he knew how happy I'd be. You know, and, and he, he gave me, it was Amazing Spider-Man 239, I remember it well. Um, and, and you know, that so so they were very supportive of my reading comics and being into it. Um, when, when it came to a career in comics, though, that was, you know, it took my dad a long time uh, to understand what that was about, you know, and, and if it's a real job even. Um, and, and he would, you know, he... Uh, <laughs> He, he would always, you know, 
ask, you know, he'd always tell me like these, these job offers that he heard about, like I could go, uh, you know, watch people lay pipe and get paid all kinds of money and travel around the country. And <laughs> I'm like, but I've got, you know, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make it as a comic book writer. He's like, Oh, you can do that anyway. Like your little hobby thing, you know, it doesn't matter. Like just, you know, just, just do this for a career instead, you know? Um, but, but finally, um, and I know I'm skipping way ahead, but, uh, but you know, finally, uh, it was like 2005, uh, we went to universal studios, me and, and my brother and sister and, and my parents and my sister's kids. And they have that Marvel, uh, comic book store in there. Oh yeah. And there were a bunch of comics that I had written in there, like Sentinel and Inhumans and stuff. And so that was the moment where my dad kind of had the aha moment. Like, this is a real job. And he's <laughs> like, that's my son. My son wrote that. And that, that was, you know, that was pretty cool. Absolutely. I want to go back to uh, your, your, your your own comic book shop for a second because that's pretty cool. Yeah. And an interesting period, again, to kind of get into comic book retailing uh, at such a yeah. young age just because, you know, you have the space and it's like, why not? Why don't we do this? Um, what was that like to kind of be an early comics retailer? Because that's, as you said, that's kind of the advent of the direct market. That How do you go about kind of, kind of running your own kind of space? Well, it... Um you know, even even when it was just the four foot rack, it was difficult because you know it's it's one of those few businesses um, that's still around where every week you get brand new inventory, mm-hmm. and you know every week there's brand new inventory, and you want to try to sell it, you know, as much of as close to a hundred percent as you can, uh, in you know within a month, and. And it happens every week, and so it's it cash flow wise, it, it's a real it's a real bear. You know, you can start like I was putting my you know my paychecks from working at the hardware store into it um, for a while, and uh, and it's you know it's tough to make a living at it. You know, I'm 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 amazed when I go to a comic shop and they have you know multiple employees that who they pay you know um, a good living wage and who have benefits and and things like that. You know. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how they do it. It's it's amazing uh, because all that you have to get really good at, at determining, uh, you know, what to order and and how much and and uh, and saving yourself from having a lot of shelf copies. For sure. Well, and it's more it's more interesting to me that you kind of did this in a period where it wasn't as as uh, you know information wasn't as prevalent. First of all, I'm sure books were you know back then they still ship late fairly often. I, I would imagine that you know it's not quite like today where for the most part most books ship on time. <laughs> um, where at the right. time, like at the time, just well, the, the knowledge was different. Right. Well, back then the you know the consumer didn't really know when books were coming out in the first place. True. So. So that wasn't like you didn't have the pressure from your readers. I mean, you you would get holes in your uh, cash flow, you know, like they do now, like they always have, you know, with books that are late. And if it's a big seller, you know that that hurts your your business for that month, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, back then, it, like you said, with the with the way information was, um, it was a lot of you know seat of your pants kind of. <laughs> kind of stuff and you, and that was back when you know we didn't have the final order cutoff date which they have you know is like three weeks in advance of publication for a lot of publishers it, it back then it was you know three months in advance you're ordering so by the time you get that first issue you're you know you're committed uh to the next couple and you, you know you better hope that 
that people like it, you know, because because uh, you ordered, you know, 70% of your number one orders for number two and, you know, another 70% of your number of your number two for number three and you know you just, you just hope that uh you know 90 percent of the people don't walk after the first issue and that happened a lot because you know a lot of people were buying uh multiple first issues just to uh you know put their kids through college so they thought yeah for sure when you again when you're kind of running this this space i mean so when you how would you figure out even what you wanted to order because i mean i guess you're getting exposed to more comics by doing this but how do you even know what people want at this point and how are you starting to expand that and again especially kind of during that early 90s period how do you keep on top of it well um you know in the when i started it in the late 80s there weren't quite so many books um, and so how I started was I said, well, I'll just order a few of, of everything. Um, even like the Marvel star line. I remember like the first week of books I got had an issue of Heathcliff. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think I just ordered one for the shelf. Um, and then like I'd order three daredevils and then however many, you know, I'd order more of the Spider-Mans and the X-Men because even, you know, I don't recall exactly if it was in Comics Buyer's Guide back then, but you could see um, you could see the the order charts. And this was before I was even with with Diamond. I started out with a just a mail order company that had deep discounts because um, I couldn't I couldn't quite meet the minimums of, of Diamond or Capital City or or any of the other distributors that were around back then. Um, but I, I really just went by my gut and. And my heart, <laughs> you know, I wanted Spider-Man to sell well. I wanted, you know, like these were the books I liked, so I ordered more of them. Um, and that it worked out fairly well, um, you know. I, th- you know, I, and then in the in the '90s when I was college aged, usually, you know, the the week the previews came out, uh, me and my friends would come over to, you know, they'd come over to my place, and we'd all flip through previews together and get drunk and <laughs> and like. T- and like point stuff out to each other, you know, and that's, and their excitement and interest was kind of how I gauged my, my orders. When you, when you eventually, you know, left town, what'd your dad end up doing with that space that was essentially become a comic book store? Well, yeah. I, uh, well, for a little while, um, you know, I, I don't remember what exactly they did with it in the end. Um, but it was still there for a little while just because, um, uh, you know, I had to uh, come back up in a couple months, and then I, I closed it down proper, and I brought all of my inventory with me to Ohio to sell. It was like 18 long boxes worth of comics. Um, and uh, and the store uh, closed in 99. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I had only visited twice since I moved away, and I don't, I don't really remember what they did with that area. Um, but it, uh, the store's gone now, so, uh, unfortunately. Did that area ever get a comic book store that wasn't yours? No, no. I mean, that's, small, I think that was a passion area. thing. I didn't have to pay rent. You know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think a comic book store could make it there. Um, there were, there was like a baseball card shop that tried to sell comics. There's, there was a, uh, chain bookstore that sold comics, which is where I bought comics before then. And, um, but, but no, it's not really something that, um, that a town that size, uh, demands. Hmm. Now, when did you decide that I, you know, I want to, well, first of all, not that I want to write comics, but I, I want to write, I'm good at this. I'm creative. 
Um, well, I got a lot of um, got a lot of encouragement in high school. Uh, any kind of creative writing I did um, was really well liked by my teachers, um, and I wrote a lot of horror stuff. Um, <laughs> in fact, back in fifth grade, um, I wrote a sequel to Halloween <laughs> um, that starred other classmates. And this is the kind of thing that would get you uh, uh, thrown out of school these days. But <laughs> I, uh, So I wrote this serialized Halloween story where all my classmates are getting killed by Michael Myers. And me and, me and my buddy Darren were the, uh, were the heroes of the story. And my fifth grade English teacher would actually, on Fridays, let me read a chapter of, of it to the class. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the times will change, eh? And at one point, she said, "You know, you have to end this like saying it was all a dream or something, <laughs> you know." And I and I made it. Uh, it ended that it was all it was all being filmed. It was a movie. Oh, you okay. Know? Uh, which is a dumb <laughs> ending, but you know, um, yeah, it, it uh, yeah, times have definitely changed. But so, um, I mean, I wrote. Yeah, now that I think about it, in, in second or third grade, I wrote and directed a play starring Spider-Man and Daredevil that, like, you know, I had other classmates star in, and we used, like, desks as, like, we we made rooms out of the desks, and, like, all the kids who were watching it were, like, on, up against the walls, I think. You know, yeah, I, mean, I, I was just always interested in it and encouraged by teachers uh, and my mom a lot, and, uh, and that's what, you know, I don't know, I can't tell you, like, a lightning strike kind of moment that said, I'm going to write comic books. But I mean, I didn't think of it as a career going into college. I was a theater major. I was going to be an actor. Um, that's what I really wanted to do. And then I, I realized the realities of what it means to be a working actor and, uh, and dropped out of college. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's when I really started pursuing the idea of, of writing comic books particularly. And how do you kind of go about that when that happens? Like, obviously, like, that's always interesting when people kind of make that decision that, you know, the direction I was going in isn't where I want anymore for a variety of different reasons. And then they kind of make that heel turn. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a comic writer, so I don't have a, what a quote unquote cool career. But um, I was always going to be a history teacher. And then I graduated university. And I was like, nope, I don't see that anymore. And instead of doing what some people would have done is said, well, this is the plan. I'm going to go do this anyway. Just kind of had a, you know, made a total left turn and ended up working at a bank and becoming a financial planner. And it's the best thing I ever did, but it was never anything I would have thought of because it was just never on the plan, never something I really thought about. And suddenly my entire life changed. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, for me, it was, it was, you know, there was a certain convenience to it. Um, I moved back in with my parents. Um, they, I had a full-time job with them. Um, so I could live on the cheap and I, in my spare time I could, I could come up with pitches and, and, uh, you know, send those off and get nice rejection letters, um, and form rejection letters and a couple mean rejection letters. <laughs> um, do you still have them all? No, I, you know what? I, I lost them somewhere along the way. I, I had them all together. And when I, you know, between then and moving, uh, you know, I don't know where they went, you know, um, who knows? It's probably sitting in my, in my, in my parents' home somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, but I had I had several Marvel and DC, you know, I had a couple from DC and um, like Harris Publications and a few other places. Um, but you know, so I had I had this this opportunity um, that my parents gave me by by you know um, giving having a, a place where I could live rent free and you know and they're making me dinner and <laughs> and uh, and you know I'm working for them and. Um, so I, so I used that time to, to try to figure out what I wanted to write, if not, um, if not Spider-Man or, or some superhero thing, you know, because that's all I was really doing was, well, mostly was, I was pitching superhero comics, you know? Um, and so, you know, I kind of was looking around at, at the comics I was selling and, and, you know, I really liked Strangers in Paradise. I really liked Straight Bullets. I really liked, uh, Hate by Peter Bagg. And I thought, you know, um, why don't I just kind of write something along those lines, something that's not, you know, fantastical at all, um, something with some com- some humor and some heart, some romance, um, you know, and then I took, you know, some cues from TV shows I was really enjoying at the time, which would be like ER and Homicide Life on the Street, and I just kind of looked to them at, at how to do serialized storytelling in a way that that comics maybe weren't necessarily doing at the time, you know, to kind of create like, um, a television, uh, teen drama in comic book form. Uh, and that's, that's how the waiting place came about. Now, how did you end up pitching it or like, how did, how did it kind of catch fire? Uh, what happened there was, um, uh, first I, you know, I went down the long path of trying to find an artist to work with me. Um, which took a couple of years and, and, um, a mutual friend of myself and, and, uh, Brennan and Brian frame, uh, twin brothers out of, out of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he introduced us to each other, um, by email. And, uh, and we, uh, I said to them, you know, here's the first issue of this thing. Um, draw the f- first three pages and we'll see how it looks. And they did that. And I'm like, okay, well, like these are the first three pages of the comic. I'll drop a contract if you guys want to do it. And you know, I said, what we'll do is we'll just make the first issue, um, and I'll try to. I'll go to San Diego this summer. I'll try to pitch it around, and we'll try to get a publisher. And if we don't, we'll figure out the next step. And they were they were cool with that. So I went down to San Diego, and um, this was in '96. And I, you know, I went around to um, all the publishers and gave them. These, these nice copies I printed up and they threw them in these big, you know, cardboard boxes full of submissions. And I got really dispirited after that, you know, and, uh, uh, about a month after San Diego, I had a message on my machine from Dan Botto who, uh, uh, owns slave labor graphics. And he said, uh, yeah, I read this uh, book, the waiting place. I want to read number two. So you know, I'll publish the thing. <laughs> you know that was and that was how I how we found a publisher and and you know from there I mean the book launched and we only sold about a thousand copies an issue um, <clears throat> but the long story short version is that um, one of the people reading it uh, was Tom Brevert at Marvel and meanwhile I had been you know still sending pitches and books to, to Marvel and some specifically to Tom Brevert who Apparently, had never received them or doesn't recall them. 
Um, but it was my friend uh, uh, Paul Jenkins who who uh, clued Tom in to the fact that I was interested in working at Marvel because he was working on uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and The Incredible Hulk at the time, Paul was. And Tom was his editor. And Tom said, oh, I like The Waiting Place. Uh, it's a really good book. And so um, uh, Paul got me the opportunity to, to work with him on an issue of The Hulk, which was it was really like he was he was more acting as a second editor um, more than anything um, for that issue. Um, and he was super helpful. Um, and... And then I, I started getting more work from Marvel at that point. Now, just go back a second. So when did you become friends with Paul Jenkins? Because that's a pretty big piece of the puzzle here. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, so back in the 90s, um, back in the days of dial-up, I was um, on CompuServe quite a lot. Okay. Um, which was, uh, for you youngins, um, CompuServe <laughs> and AOL were these places you went, before, you know, pre-internet days where... You know, they were basically, I don't know, like Reddits, <laughs> like, like Reddit, Reddit fiefdoms. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were like the hubs of the internet. Right. And, uh, there was a comics and animation forum on CompuServe and I became friends with, and, and just, you know, just knew, um, some other professionals through there. Um, and, uh, and also being a retailer that kind of gave me an in as well. Um, you know, and talking to other, not just other retailers, but the pros. Um, and Paul and I became friends just through chatting on, on, uh, CompuServe. And I told him I was trying to, you know, trying to become a writer and he took an interest and he, you know, he, um, he read one of my scripts and, you know, called me up and told me to get my red pen. It's time to bleed, you know, and he gave me, he gave me copious notes about like what I was doing wrong, what I could do better, um, why something doesn't work, um, and and became a you know my mentor really, um, and so he he always took an interest in in where my career was headed, um, and we would see each other at conventions and stuff, and we roomed together my first time going to San Diego, um, and and so we, so that was probably first time I went to San Diego I think it was ninety four or ninety five. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we, we'd been friends for a few years and, and, and he knew I was, I was really impatient to, <laughs> to kick off a career in writing comics, you know, and, and, but, you know, I, um, I got that help job in late 2000 and I didn't start, you know, writing enough books to be a full-time writer until 2003. And that was like a, the longest three years of my life, you know? Sure. Well, it was more like a little over two years, but it was, it felt like forever to me, you know, because I, I, I was so close and I knew I could make it, you know? Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. That's, yeah. that would be, you know, you're so, yeah, you, as you said, you're so close, you're, you're, you're actually starting to write some of the books, but it's not regular yet. It's not something you can depend on yet, but it's so close to happening. Right. Like I, you know, I, I, I wrote an arc of, of the Hulk based on, um, on some notes of Paul's, um, as he was, unable to uh, continue on the book and I was all excited to you know for the possibility that I might take over and then that's when they brought in Bruce Jones and had a big you know uh, uh, change in direction uh, so I didn't get that you know but there were all these little you know I'd get a little one sh- one shot here or there I'd, or I'd write um, um, inventory stories for Marvel um, and and you know I'd freak 
uh, Tom Brevert out by telling him, oh, yeah, I'm quitting my job to focus on comics. He's like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> you know? um, but, but I would, you know, I, I was working as a web designer then, and I would just kind of jump from one web design job to the other. And then, and then I was also working uh, um, first at first Saturdays and then like part-time, uh, almost full-time really at the Laughing Ogre in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so that was kind of how I, you know, made ends meet. And then, and then the comic, you know, when the comic book work came in, that was, you know, that kind of helped me from being in debt, um, until, until finally in late 2002, um, I got approached by, uh, Tom Brevard and, and his assistant editor, Mark Sumerak to, uh, pitch a couple books to them. Uh, they were having like several artists pit or several writers pitch, um, a bunch of concepts and, and they asked me to pitch for uh, Sentinel and Inhumans and so I wrote pitches for those and they gave me both the books and I was off and running. Now I definitely want to spend time on that but I do have a curiosity so in that kind of that middle place while you're still waiting to kind of get something or waiting for something more permanent to come along um, I didn't realize that it was you but I guess there's the one issue of Spider-Girl you wrote which is interesting that it's I guess the only issue that Tom DeFalco never wrote. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the inventory stories that they hired me for. And um, what had happened there was um, was it was you know it had been drawn and was sitting in inventory, and they had you know Spider Girl has had a number of cancellation scares throughout its run, um, and number fifty was one of those you know this is going to be the last issue, and then it, it got a last minute reprieve, and so Mark Sumerak's like. I got to get this out here now. <laughs> it's ever going to get published, so he so he put it in there at issue fifty one. You know, um, but that was that was a fun thing to write. Um, and I worked with Casey Jones on that, who's who's terrific. Um, and yeah, and I wrote a Weapon X inventory story that never saw print. Oh, really? Which is really sad because because I had Wild Child uh, befriend and eat a teenage girl. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really dark comic. <laughs> now, at least this time, it wasn't one of your classmates, though, right? Right, right. No, no, it wasn't. No, no, it was an ex-girlfriend. No, it wasn't. No. Um, no, it was like you know, it was like just trying to show like the animal nature of the of the character because the, the Weapon X series that was going at that time was like they were kind of like the Dirty Dozen kind of kind of team, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I wanted to to just kind of showcase like that, you know, um, even a human monster has like other emotions as well. And, you know, um, but is compelled to eventually to, uh, succumb to his urges, you know, like a vampire or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but that was never, that was, I never saw print and I did a Emma Frost mini series that never saw print. Um, and what else did I do back then? <laughs> uh, I did like a, I did a um, a short Ant Man story that Darwin Cook illustrated. Oh wow! That was that was yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, I had almost gotten Jeff Smith to illustrate it, but that didn't happen because Jeff Smith's in in Columbus, and and so I knew him just from uh, seeing him at the Laughing Ogre and conventions. Um, and and I I put Marvel in touch with him, and he was like. 
she's like, dude, that was you know really flattering. That's really cool. I couldn't do it though. But I mean, I, I'm not complaining one iota about getting Darwin Cook. I mean, that's you know he he really did a great job with that. And so I, so I did these little things like that uh, during that period, and um, and some I did some work for Vertigo that never saw print, and uh, and I worked for. Um, did a few issues of a vampy book for, for Harris publications that they canceled midway through a six issue arc and then asked me to come back to write new vampy stuff. And I'm like, well, you got to finish the other vampy stuff. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that because they wanted a new number one or whatever. And so I you know, uh. didn't do more of that. But, but yeah, so I, I was doing all these little things, um, a GI Joe two-parter, you know, whatever, whatever, um, whatever I could make happen, you know, um, Whoever was interested in me, I, I I took it. For sure. Now, when when you do do that, you know the pitches, and then now we have um, the Sentinel coming out. So, what from the inside? What was it like, kind of working as part of what was you know kind of a new imprint that was kind of happening as part of I guess tsunami, right? Like, was was there much discussion on what tsunami tsunami was to you guys uh, for the different creative teams working on the different books, or was it just I just pitched a book and we're going to put it together? Uh, it was, I pitched a book and we're going to put it together. Um, I, the first I knew about Tsunami and all this stuff was I, um, I got a, I don't remember if it was an email or a phone call. I think it was an email from, uh, somebody from Wizard and they're asking me questions like, how does it feel to be part of the Tsunami line? Um, since the Tsunami line is manga influence, what would you say your manga influences are? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I, I was completely caught off guard by all of it, you know. And uh, I mean, Inhumans isn't even remotely manga influenced. Um, Sentinel obviously was through the art, but um, but my you know my my manga sensibilities aren't aren't that well uh, refined, you know. I mean, I, I've read some stuff, but not, but it's not kind of where I draw inspiration from. Um, so it was it was really weird, um, and once I once I had a sense of how many books they were actually putting out, I was honestly at the time I was I was you know I mean I'm launching two Marvel books, two Marvel number ones. This is incredible, but at the same time it's like oh my god they're putting out how many? They're going to cannibalize each other, you know. And, and I I think that's part of what happened there. But I, you know I, I credit them a lot for trying a lot of new talent and trying a lot of different things. Um, like I know they, you know, they, you know, like they did, uh, that Namor mm-hmm. kind of, you know, romancy book and they, you know, and, and they did, um, they did a human torch series with Scotty Young and they, you know, and they did Venom and, you know, and they, and they, they tried to take a different tack with, with a lot of the stuff. And I, and I think that that's, I think that's laudable, you know, and, and Runaways came out of it and that was a, a huge success. For sure. And in fact, I, when I look back at Sentinel, I feel like it was published almost 10 years too early. Because um, like, there's a lot of books with a similar type of field these days that do quite well, and now there's like a more of a market for them. But I feel like at the time, maybe just people weren't ready for it. Like, I don't know. Like, I really enjoyed it, but I don't know why it didn't catch on as much at the time. I, you know, I, I, I feel that way about a lot of the stuff I did in Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> um I feel that way about Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. I feel that way about Young Allies. I feel that way about, um, definitely about Sentinel and, in, and Inhumans. Um, you know, I was, I was trying, I was trying to bring a certain sensibility that I 
that I, you know, honed in the waiting place to my superhero comics, you know, and, um, it, it really changed the way that I, like any of the plots that I had when I was blind pitching Marvel, those were long gone, you know, those were based on like, you know, I want to see, you know, the Sandman like punch something or, you know, whatever, um, you know, and this was about like, you know, what do I really want to write about? Um, and so, you know, whatever I did was infused with, you know, a, a very strong character first inclination. Um, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of merge what I love about Marvel with what I do. And sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't, I think, you know, but, um, but yeah, I do, I do feel like there's an audience now that's, that is more accepting of that kind of material. Like I wish, I wish, like it's been. A, I don't even remember the last time they ever reprinted anything from Sentinel. But that, again, like they've used the characters, unfortunately, not necessarily to their betterment. But I mean, uh, no. <laughs> but I mean, but I, I guess it's nice that they still exist somewhere. But I mean, it's just interesting that they've never really brought any of that stuff back because you know the tsunami line, as you said, like there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, some of it didn't all click, and maybe some of it didn't all work. But I mean, they put out a lot of stuff. They tried a lot of different things, and yeah, you got to give them credit for trying. Maybe they put out too much at the same time and maybe that was as you said kind of cannibalizing each other I think so and I, I think ultimately that that digest format just didn't work out um, I think that I think that the people that they were targeting smelled a phony mm. you know I think that if you if you were a fan of, of Viz or, or um, Tokyo Pop and suddenly you saw Spider-Man next to it or, or the Marvel logo, you went, what? You know? Um, and and then the comic book, uh, you know, the, like the sort of standard, you know, 40-year-old, you know, like me-aged people who, who are long, lifelong comic fans are like, oh, what's this little book? Or, you know, oh, this comic has loves in the title and a heart on it, you know? <laughs> and, so, and so it was kind of, I think it, it didn't really connect with either side unfortunately. Um, but you know, Sentinel was, was an interesting one because they had me come back to write a uh, five issue miniseries for Sentinel because they wanted to have a third book because the, um, because the first two issues had sold pretty well or the first two, uh, digests. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it hasn't been reprinted since I have these, um, these nice full size volumes that were printed, I think in France, um, is that Panini? Yeah, or? yeah, it was. Yeah, like I, I got in this uh, thing like last, you know, uh, like about ten years ago or so, where I was finding these Panini books on foreign Amazon websites and ordering them, <laughs> you know, and trying to like translating what what it said on the website so that I could uh, order them on there. But um, but yeah, uh, they haven't reprinted it in in quite some time, um, you know. I, there's a lot of my material out there that they, you know, it's, it's kind of um, gone out of print. But uh, Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane is coming back next year. It looks like in a in a full size collection, so that's good. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I mean, I, I own that. 
uh, I have all the singles from that. I, it was just a lot of fun. And I remember my girlfriend at the time was like, Oh, this is, this is pretty good. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's a great comic and you should like comics. And this is a great, you know, uh, you know, uh, opener drug into getting into this. And then, uh, years later, my, my wife, who's a different person, uh, also liked those same comics. And it was just, there's something about it that I loved it because I could appreciate and enjoy everything that was kind of going on in Spider-Man loves Mary Jane, but so could someone else. And I'm like, oh, who doesn't usually like comics? Like they're a great bridge. I like comics. I liked it because of their subtext. There's a lot of other things going on and I know what's going on and they're just enjoying it because it's a, it's a good story. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I was hoping for. You know, I think, but I think there's a lot of, you know, I think people come in with a lot of expectations, um, you know, whether they're coming from outside of comics or, or are in the comics, you know, and the hardest part is getting them to actually read it, you know, um, but, uh, but, uh, but hopefully, you know, this, this uh, new collection will, you know, reach a new audience and, and, uh, and see some daylight. That'd be nice. How did the Mary Jane book kind of get pitched? Because the other books, I mean, they're they're kind of they're more set in current continuity, but Mary Jane is definitely a different beast. So how do how does it even kind of organically get created? Well, um, it started out with um, Mackenzie Cadenhead, who was an editor at Marvel, coming to me, and she said, um, uh, "Alan Fine, who's um, you may know from the you know he's more connected to the movie uh, division." Um, you know, was was kind of complaining. Well, not really complaining, but he, he was kind of wishing that there was a Mary Jane comic. He said, you know, she's such a popular character in these movies. Like, why don't you know? Um, why don't Why don't we have a series uh, for her? You know, and, that, and I think that that's kind of how also the Mary Jane uh, YA novelizations came about. Um, was from that same sort of interest in in reaching out to the female readers. Um, and so Mackenzie came to me and asked me to pitch her what I would do. Um, and she said, you know, it's not going to be in continuity. You can kind of do what you want. Um, you know, it doesn't have to follow any, anything at all. Like, you know, they can, Peter and Mary Jane can be in the same high school. Don't worry about any of that. Um, and so, you know, I, um, I wrote a pitch and, 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 you know, we went, we went forward with that, um, Originally, it was going to be an ongoing series, and then they cut it at four issues um, due to the sales of the um, due to the sales of the individual issues. Um, and then the the digest did really well, and they they said we're going to do a second mini series. So they were already going to do a second mini series at that point. Sorry, um, and then uh, and then from that second mini series and and the sales. Of, of both of those, they decided to do uh, an ongoing, um, but they wanted to change the name because they wanted to have Spider-Man at the beginning of the title. So alphabetically, it shows up, and so his name is on the cover, and you know all that stuff. And they were saying they were thinking of things like, you know, that of course Spider-Man's girlfriend Mary Jane, and or Spider-Man presents Mary Jane, or Spider-Man and Mary Jane, and I and I just threw out. How about Spider-Man loves Mary Jane? And, I, you know, I was half joking. And and Mackenzie was like, oh, my God, I love it. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and it stuck. And I, I, I really like the title. But um, and, and that, so that's, you know, that's kind of the story of how, how that got going. 
Now, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm sure you weren't necessarily involved, but I mean, the, uh, having Takeshi on the book is such a huge gift because it's just, I can't imagine the book uh, working as well without Takeshi. How did, when did Takeshi become involved? Takeshi was involved before I was. Oh, um, really? Yeah, they had, well, I don't know if he was actually doing anything like, like character sketches at that point, but, but like they already had him tapped. Like when I got my first phone call from Mackenzie, she said, we have this great artist, Takeshi uh, Miyazawa, um, uh, you know, and they sent me some of his work and I'm like, holy cow, (laughs) (laughs) you know, he's just that, he's that perfect blend of, of he's, you know, he's got all the manga sensibilities, but it's very Americanized. He's very, um, uh, incredible sense of, of fashion, um, and a wonderful storyteller, amazing storyteller, um. And so, so he, yeah, so he was really there before I was, um, and man, he was just one of those guys I could shorthand with, you know, um, him and Mike Norton are, are two artists that like, we, we just kind of, um, had some kind of mind meld or something (laughs) and we just worked so well together and, and, you know, I'd find situations where, where I, you know, I'd overwrite a page and I'd, I'd look at Takeshi's art when he gets it in and I would just cut dialogue left and right and like leave panels completely, you know, without copy because like he nailed the emotional beat, you know, and like, like putting words over it would just be ham fisted, you know? Um, and, and we worked so well together. Um, I'd love to work with him again. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing book. People should definitely uh, check out the Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane complete collections when they start coming out next year because, uh, you know, you can finally have it all in a nice proper size, you know, kind of collections. Yeah, and you don't have to pay. Um, I, I just saw it today on eBay. Somebody bought the Volume 1 hardcover for $103 or something Oof. like that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's commitment. I wish I still had my... my uh, my cops for that. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Mike Norton. So I got to ask, you know, how did gravity come about? It's a, such a fantastic character and a great book when it launched. Um, what was the process of kind of pitching Marvel on this new character? Um, well, th- that was another thing where Mackenzie Cadenhead came to me. Um, Mackenzie and I worked together a bunch and, and um, she's my favorite editor I ever worked with. Um, it's too bad she's not doing it now, but she's, you know, she's successfully, uh, uh, doing her own writing now, um, and, and raising, uh, some kids. Um, but, uh, she said, we want to have some new, uh, superheroes, like brand new, uh, we want you to create one. And that was, that was about it. You know, that it was going to be a five issue mini series. And, um, I suggested, uh, Mike, as the artist, um, and at first they were, they weren't sure about Mike and they said, well, we'll hire him to do character designs. Um, and so they hired him to do character designs and, um, just to backtrack, like I had worked with Mike already. We, um, we did the second volume of the waiting place together. That's right. Um, started in 1999 and, uh, so we'd known each other a long time and, you know, I'd, I'd been, chopping at the bit to work with Mike again. And, um, I can't remember the, the exact timeline here, but I think this had to have been before we worked on Marvel Adventures Spider-Man together because I, because I, I want to say that this happened first, but I don't know. Um, uh, because I don't think he had been, 
Yeah, he hadn't been hired by Marvel yet because he, he, I think at the time he was still full time at Devil's Due, um, in the production department and design and stuff. Um, so once he did this, the the character work and that they brought him on board as co-creator, and you know, I mean, uh, it was a pretty straightforward uh, situation. You know, um, uh, I I did what I do with with uh, Mary Jane or with The Waiting Place, you know, I, I, I populated the book with a cast of characters and, and you know, kind of had a, a, you know, mission statement for what the character's about, you know, and this was, to me, was kind of looking back on, on when I went to college and how I thought I had it all figured out and wound up, you know, being terribly wrong about a lot of things, <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of people are, right? Uh, you know, yourself included, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and so I wanted to write about that experience about, you know, a kid who comes from a small town, goes to the big city, a kid who just got superpowers and thinks he he can just show up and be a superhero, <laughs> you know. Um, he's like, oh, I got it all planned out. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to major in marketing. I'm going to sell my own action figures, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and it all it all goes to shit. <laughs> Yep. Um, at least not all, you know, I, I like to have my, my stories be bittersweet. Um, you know, he, he lands a pretty good, uh, relationship and a, and a quality friendship and, uh, saves the day. But that, that was, um, you know, that was, that was about, uh, about the totality of, 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 of that. And, you know, we had, I think we had briefly talked about there possibly being more to do, but, um, but only very briefly. A question I always had about gravity is that in the in the second issue you have him fighting the rhino, and I was I don't know why I thought this, but I always thought it was like was that an intentional callback to? And I'm sure it isn't at all. It's just my hyperactive, you know, I was probably what like 20 years old brain. But I remembered um, the Green Goblin when he had his heroic series, um, the Phil Yurick version in the mid 90s. In his second issue, he fought the the rhino, and I was like, oh, he's he's doing the same thing. He's you know. <laughs> no, I I never read that book. I was always. Um wasn't it, um, it wasn't Scott Collins, it was, um... McDaniel. McDaniel, Scott McDaniel, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I loved the artwork in it, but I just, it was at, um, a period, that was at a period when Marvel had its own distribution company. That's and right. And I wasn't selling Marvel books because I couldn't meet their minimums. So, like, I, yeah, I didn't, I never read that. Okay, so no connection at all. None at all. That's <laughs> awesome, though. Well, it's one of those, it's one of those things where we're comic book fans. We make connections where they don't belong. Oh, sure. Happens all the time. Um, when you came back to write that second volume of Sentinel, um, did it did it feel still like how were you feeling about Sentinel at that point? You know, you had the first twelve issue run, and then they were kind of bringing you back. What were your feelings on doing more with the character? It was it was hard. It was hard to come back to because um, I didn't know what to what to do with it. Honestly, um, because one of the things about these uh, tsunami books, at least the ones that you know, the, the two that I worked on, um, there was a lot of pressure to not connect it to the Marvel universe, which you know was really annoying to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, I want to, I want to have, you know, I want to have Justin in the Sentinel fight a mutant, you know, and they're like, ah, you know, um, it's only the most natural thing you could do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, there does wind up being a mutant in the story, but, but you know, it, 
Um, I, I wrote an entire pitch that got turned down. Um, like I had to do a page one rewrite on that pitch, and it was just, you know, it was uh, it was really difficult for me to figure out what to do until I came up with kind of the emotional core of it, which was uh, Justin uh, going across state lines with the Sentinel to go find his mom, um, and and so that that became what I you know what I wanted to write about, and then like how do we how do we take this kind of the, to the next level? What else in the world um, has become aware of his existence? Um, you know, because otherwise, I mean, you got this kid and this big robot and a bunch of normals. Like, you know, where's the challenge? <laughs> and, you know, the only challenge is like, where does he hide it? You know, um, which I had, I had fixed uh, kind of at the end of that. But, um but yeah, it was very difficult to come back to that. Um, but once I wrote it, I was I was very glad to have, to have done it. A little bit earlier, um, I guess I guess in the second year of the tsunami imprint, uh, you start working on Mystique, which I guess ends up not being a tsunami book. At least it wasn't branded as such anymore. Um, what was it like, kind of, to to take on that book from Vaughn, and how did you kind of approach writing a character like that? And what was kind of going on behind the scenes in terms of you know it started becoming much more integrated with the Marvel universe? Uh, was that an interesting kind of direction for you to be able to kind of play with, or how did that kind of play out? Well. The first thing I'll say is it's, it's a piece of cake to follow Brian K. Vaughn on a book. <laughs> easy peasy. No expectations. <laughs> um, so what happened there was, uh, so, uh, so in 2000, late 2003, I just moved into a new apartment, um, a nicer apartment, and a friend of mine was helping me move my couches into the new apartment when I got a phone call from from uh, Mark Sumerak, my editor on Sentinel and Inhumans. He said, hey, buddy, I got some bad news. Sentinels have been canceled. I'm like, okay, well, I, I guess we kind of saw that coming. He goes, I've got more bad news. Inhumans is canceled. I'm like, oh, that's everything I'm working on right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I just bought new couches. <laughs> I just bought a new living room set. So, uh, so, you know, that was the first of many times that I've gone, you know, a period without work. But, um, shortly thereafter, um, I was in, I was at, uh, Mid Ohio Con and Corey Settlemeyer, who was then the editor of Mystique, um, happened to be in town. I don't remember if he had family there, but it was something not directly convention related. Um, and he came to talk to me and, and asked me if I wanted to write Mystique. And I said, hell yeah. Um. And so I went into that um, a little bit blind because I hadn't been reading it. Um, so I, I, the first thing I did was read all the issues and, and then said, oh, so he's leaving this on the table and this on the table. Um, so the first thing I had to do to try to kind of make it into the book I wanted to, to, to tell was to kind of ease my way there by telling the story of the quiet man and, and finishing up that kind of stuff. Um, but by the time, but by the time I got to that, um, the book had been canceled. Uh, so, so I never really got to kind of, you know, make it, put my own stamp on it so much, but, um, but it was definitely, um, you know, I definitely gave it a, a bit of my own style. Um, 
you know, there was some pressure to, to uh, punch it up uh, Vaughn style, you know, but it's like, eh, you know, I, yeah. I can do me. <laughs> when you're, when you get, when you're talking to an editor and something like that kind of comes up, maybe not specifically punch it up Vaughn style, but in that right. kind of idea, what, what, what to you as a writer, what does that mean? And what is, what does your style mean? Or what is it feeling more like a McKeever book versus, what does it make it feel like when it's a bomb book? And when they say punch it up that style, what does that mean? Well, I don't know if I can quantify it, really. I mean, I think I think you can read a comic book and you know the difference between, without without, without specifics of the, of the plot even, you know, you know the difference between a Warren Ellis comic and a Mark Wade comic and a Kurt Busiek comic, you know, like, like they just have a different voice, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they have different... Um, you know, they have different uh, uh, rhythms, um, different priorities, um, different um, different go-to uh, vernacular. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think that the, I think that you know I think what they wanted from me was for it to feel more like you know like like, and they didn't say punch it up like Vaughn, but but I knew that that's what they meant when they said punch it up. You know, yeah. um, because because I don't, you know, I'm not. I wasn't going for like super quippy. I, w- I went a little more serious with it. Um, and that's, you know, I think that was kind of the fun level of the book that, that I was, you know, I did some of that, but not a lot of it. And I think that that was kind of what was that issue. Um, and so I think that's what they meant by that. And, uh, you know, I, I can do my version of that is the best I can do, you mm-hmm. know, and I, and I don't want to be somebody who's hired to do, my version of somebody else necessarily, you know, yeah. although, although when, you know, I've taken over three books, um, in my career and I had to take over for, for Vaughn, uh, for Gail Simone on birds of prey and f- took over for Jeff Johns on teen Titans, you know, and it's like, <laughs> they're, they're basically just like going, Hey, let's see this guy fail now. Um, <laughs> How can he possibly succeed? But, you know, I always tried on some level to understand what they're doing and try to not shock the readers because those were all successful books. I, you know, I wasn't taking over a, a failing book and told to revamp it. No. You know, I was taking over a successful book and told to to write new stuff, you know. Um, so it's, it's you know, I, I tried to, to pay heed to who, came just before me because um, I don't want to I don't want to lose people you know but uh, but then what happens there is, is I think I you know um, at the time at least I think it'd be different now um, you know it, it becomes something kind of that's not anybody's you know mm, yeah so let me ask a, uh, this is a bit of a stranger question but uh, of all the different comic book you, work you've done which do you think is the most unlike your voice like your voice obviously usually is there's a certain feel to the books you work on. Which one do you think is the least like your typical voice? Countdown to Final Crisis. Okay. Well, that's one of my next questions. Was well, how, how did the, how did the migration to DC happen? Yeah. And the yeah, and my last couple issues of Teen Titans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the migration to DC is a there's a big long version of that story that gets into a lot of inside stuff, but I'm not, I'm not going. to... I'm going to 
put myself through that right now. <laughs> Let's just say it was fair. it was uh, it was emotional, uh, and it was necessary. Um, I do have, you know, I, I do run what if scenarios in my mind, um, but um, basically it had come to the point where. Um, you know, Marvel was trying to make things happen for me, and, and uh, things just kind of get kept getting put by the wayside. And um, in the meantime, DC found out that I wasn't Marvel exclusive, and, and they asked me if I wanted to work on the follow-up to 52. And I said yes, and then they said, um, great. And then um, I turned down a big book at Marvel because I couldn't work on both the follow-up to 52 and another time intensive book. And, uh, and then two weeks later, uh, DC came back and said, Oh, you have to be an exclusive to work on this book. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. And so I said, okay, (laughs) well, I guess I'm, I'm DC exclusive then. Um, and so, um, the, the, I was, I was asked to be one of the writers on Amazing Spider-Man for Brand New Day. Oh wow! Yeah, which is the you know the one book I, I would have wanted to write more than anything at the time. Um, but I I made a commitment to I had made a commitment to Countdown and you know I stood by it um, and that's how that turned out. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to DC and and. Um, at first, I was they had, the first thing they had for me outside of uh, Countdown was was Birds of Prey, um, which is a book that I you know I really liked what Gail was doing on it. I was a fan. Um, I didn't quite see myself writing it, and they really the editor talked me into it. Um, and then they came to me with um, Teen Titans, which was like the book I did want to write, but I didn't say anything because at the time. They they found somebody to take over for for Jeff. Um, they had Adam Beach in writing it, um, and so they um, they well, they unceremoniously pushed him aside. He never he technically never got told he was off the book. Um, oh wow! And uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of yeah. <laughs> Not everything that happens in comics is great. Um, and so they put me on issue, starting with issue 50, um, and they said, uh, um, you're writing a, a giant size issue, you need to uh, make a story that has um, all these elements in it, you need to have, um, you need to set up for three little vignettes that are going to be by uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez, uh, Jeff Johns and Mike McCone. And and actually, I'm, I'm the one that talked them into doing a, a Young Justice um, piece in there as well. It's like, you, and you, so you should tell, so you'll be writing this, and then you'll be telling them, like, you know, what you're setting up for them to be able to write. And I'm like, I'm telling who what? <laughs> <laughs> like, those guys should be telling me. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, Oh, and you're also setting up for your first story arc, which is uh, the Titans of Tomorrow versus the Justice League. Wow! <laughs> and and um, and it's late. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. So 
so I never really, I never really felt like I got my footing on the Teen Titans. Um, I had four editors over that two-year period. Um, you know, it was I had different ideas of what I wanted the title to be from what editorial wanted it to be, um, and in the end, um, you know, I, I tried to have my name removed from a couple books because they were putting their own dialogue in it, you know, um, and uh, didn't end well. Um, but uh, but you know, there's stuff in that Teen Titans run I'm really proud of. Um, there are definitely, um, you know, a couple arcs of that, and the and the Terror Titans miniseries, which is very poorly received. I'm still very proud of it. Um, I think it's a, kind of a great look at at you know, kind of troubled sociopathic uh, kids. You know, it was a really dark book. Um, it definitely I, was dark. Uh, I, writing. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed it. I thought the artwork by Bennett really helps. But I mean, because his artwork is always great. But yeah, I thought that was a fun book. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So, so I don't think anything really sang for me at DC. I would say the two things would be: I did this um, countdown one shot with Jamal Igel that was about um, another Earth where the Joker is the superhero and and Batman is Owlman as the you know it's the crime society. Uh, Earth, oh, yeah. not the crime, not the crime syndicate, but the crime society, which I guess is a different thing. But um, so that was the jokester, and it was his origin story, and you know it, that was a lot of fun to write. Um, and then I did um, backups in Teen Titans after I had left the book um, that focused on Ravager, and that turned out into a nice ninety-page uh, story um, that I did with uh, um, Yildiray Chinner, um, and that was a ton of fun to work with him for sure to go back just for a second just because i'm always curious about you know kind of what what does go on behind the scenes when working on countdown like what was that what did the mechanism kind of look like because obviously 52 was pretty well plotted ahead they had like a very concise group of people working on it it was very you know methodical and then they they announced another one that's going to be the follow-up and that's the countdown book and it never felt like you know from a you know just a reader looking in that they maybe had it all figured out in the same way for as a writer's perspective working with editorial what did that feel like to kind of be on that train and did it feel like a runaway train at times or did it feel like a train that you know had scheduled stops or like how did it feel like it was moving I mean, it ran at a smooth pace, um, but it—I don't think the story. I, you know, I, I think I don't think the story quite gelled together, um, and it was—it was kind of a weird deal, right? Uh, in terms of in terms of how it was structured um, creatively, um, I think the whole thing started with a, a large document from Grant Morrison, and then. Um, and then Paul Dini came in and did his own big document. Um, and Paul, his his um, role was kind of as a as the lead writer. Um, and so we would have there would be a, a conference call every week, and and that would be um, between that week's writer, Paul Dini, um, and then the editorial team um, talking through the beats of the issue, um, and. Um, that's mostly uh, Paul Dini doing the talking and, and, you know, me asking questions or making a suggestion here or there. But, you know, um, 
mostly mostly kind of Paul's direction, and then receiving a, a beat sheet that w- comes out of that conversation that Paul writes, and then I would write the script. Um, and that's how the first half went. And then they switched editorial teams midway through, and then it became um, I would get uh, how do they work at that point? Well, basically I would get thumbnails from Keith Giffen, who kind of stepped in to, um, to do breakdowns on every issue every week. Just crazy. That's a lot of work. It <laughs> is a lot of work. Um, yeah. And, um, and so we, so, so, you know, I, I didn't have any say in the story at that point, um, and was just writing dialogue. Um, so that was that experience. Okay. Uh, a question to go back to the Teen Titans for a second. Which of the Titans did you find that you really enjoyed writing their voice the most? I don't know about the most, there, but there's a few that I really liked. And uh, I mean, Blue Beetle was a ton of fun. Kid Devil was a ton of fun. Um, Wonder Girl, I liked writing quite a bit. Ravager, I liked writing quite a bit. I mean, Miss Martian, I, I, yeah, it's hard to, to pick. I guess um, it would be easier to say, is there any character on the Titans that you found was more of a challenge to write? Yeah, Kid Eternity. That was probably a mistake of mine to suggest bringing him into the team. Um, he's kind of a weird character to be, first of all, in a superhero team. And second of all, kind of his his power is to, is to not be him. Um, and I, I was interested in writing about that, but I just didn't have space in the book to do it. Mm. You know, um, when he's when he's um, when he's going up against all these other, you know, characters and their storylines. Um, but I did want to do stuff with him, kind of going into San Francisco and you know maybe exploring his sexuality, like figuring out who he is as a person because like his identity is so wrapped up in in all these other identities he brings he brings out to the fore, you know, all these dead people. Um, it would have been, you know, um, it would have been interesting, but, uh, but yeah, he was, he was kind of tough to write. When you do, so when D, when the DC kind of relationship ends up, you know, comes to its conclusion, um, how does Nomad Girl Without a World end up happening? Um, well, as soon as I knew I was leaving DC, I, I emailed Tom Brevert, um, and, and he came to me with this idea um, that w- would have spun out of uh, Captain America. Was it 600? Yeah, 600. Um, that they had brought uh, Bucky from Counter-Earth into the main Marvel Universe. And that, you know, it would be a neat idea to have a, a miniseries about her. So, um, so I, you know, I put together the pitch for that. And, and, uh, and uh, we found uh, uh, David Baldion. Um, who's currently doing Domino with Gail Simone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were off to the races. What did you like about writing that character? Because she's kind of, I mean, more or less a blank slate at that point. Well, that's kind of what I did like about writing her. Um, <laughs> so I wrote that miniseries, and then I also wrote um, probably something like a dozen uh, backups that um, were in Captain America. They were like eight-page uh, short stories or you know, multi-part arcs. Um, what I liked writing about her was the idea um, is it, is, again it's something that I connect to personally is like this idea of feeling like um, like like you're not of this world <laughs> like you know like you don't like 
you're from somewhere else and kind of got transplanted here, um, which is something, you know, something I, I'd gone through in my adolescence. Um, and, and so that's really interesting to me. Like she, you know, she has family, but they're not her family. And maybe that's, you know, to do with the fact that I'm adopted from birth, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I thought that that was really interesting. Um, and there's a, just a real earnestness that I, you know, I can't remember if it was already there. It probably was. Um, I remember being brash more than anything um, in the in the Heroes Reborn stuff, but um, and and spunky, but um, but I, I liked writing her earnest. Um, and then finally, when when I was able to start teaming her up with uh, uh, with Aranya in the back of Captain America. Um, writing their friendship um, was what I really loved writing about about her was was finding a friend um, and having a genuinely positive relationship which you don't see much uh, particularly between uh, you know female superheroes you know it's, I think there's a tendency to do this kind of cattiness or snarkiness you know I, I wanted it to be loving and genuine for sure now, when when you're writing that book, at what point do you guys start deciding that you're going to do Young Allies as part of the Heroic Age? Because it's it's you and Baldion again. So, like, how early on in the process before they're like, "No, this is this is doing well. Let's let's give this a team book." Um, that was that was me, and that was before I was done with Nomad. Um, I just I saw that you know I was looking at the older. Bucky stuff, uh, you know, uh, Rebecca Barnes, and uh, and they did that Young Justice uh, special. I think it was Fabian Nicieza, and maybe Bagley. I don't, I don't recall. Um, but they did like a fifth week event one shot, and I thought, well, that'd be fun if she created a new Young Allies, and I could put this character in it, and I really want to write Firestar again, and I really want to write Gravity again, you know. <laughs> And, and so, so it was kind of already, you know, being, so we were, we were able to see it at the end of the Nomad miniseries, like that, that Aranya was going to be in the next, uh, story that goes into Captain America. And then we were able to see like setting up the young allies. So I thought, you know, I thought it turned out like a nicely organic, uh, sort of, sort of story that went into that. Um, and that was really all it took was just like telling Tom the title and the team. And he's like, yeah, that's interesting. Make me a pitch. And so I pitched a, you know, I pitched a ongoing series for that. And, um, you know, obviously we didn't quite get around to doing everything we wanted to, but we got six issues out of it. And, uh, and then an additional four, um, as a mini series. Now, what is, I mean, obviously you, you use a character like onslaught and you can't not bring a lot of, you know, you know, people remembering what Onslaught was because obviously Onslaught was a big thing when it happened in '96. Um, what was that like to write a character like that that has the kind of very strong feelings for a lot of people? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. It's actually the second time I had written Onslaught, but the other time was for an Avengers book that I was supposed to write that never got off the ground um, um, back in 2006. Oh, really? <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted to do a very different kind of story. I didn't want it to be about, like, he has Omega power levels, you know. It's just not what I, I'm interested in. I, like, I think that that's 
good fodder for for storytelling. But I think when you get like an uber powerful character like that, like I wanted to treat him more like the monster in a horror movie, hmm. and that's kind of how I approached that that miniseries. Um, I was actually pretty heavily influenced by um, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Um, he even kind of has the same ending. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and they had kind of the idea that like, like onslaught is you know is is slowly uh, forming in our universe again. So he's not quite powerful, but he's powerful enough to possess nomad and to, and to really hurt people, and um, and so that was also very you know uh, Prince of Darkness uh, influenced. Um, but it was. That was a lot of fun to get to write The Secret Avengers. I, I enjoyed writing uh, Moon Knight way more than I thought I would. In fact, every every issue of that miniseries, the title of the issue is a quote from one of Moon Knight's lines in the in the story. Oh, really? But he's kind of yeah. He's kind of like the thematic backbone of the <laughs> of the entire miniseries. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't. I, I you know, I mean, they've already done twice the big onslaught thing so I had to try to do something else and you know um, whether or not it was successful you know that's up to others to decide uh, in 2011 uh, there the the big kind of crossover event was fear itself which I, I don't think was maybe the best received event that Marvel had ever done but I remember absolutely loving youth and revolt because it felt like such a natural use of all the young characters and bring them kind of together and yes it's kind of in the backdrop of this other bigger event but you got to tell a really nice tidy six issue story um, how did that kind of come about that you got to work with Norton again on the book yeah that um, that came around because I uh um, at this point, I had been working with Lauren Sankovich a lot um, in Tom Brevert's office, um, and and she said, "Well, we're doing this event," um, and this was as I was finishing up uh, Onslaught Unleashed, and she said that you know, that, like it's going to be, we'll let you use a bunch of young characters. You can kind of do some follow up on young allies, um, you know, and and be part of a big event. And I thought that's great. You know, I finally want to be. You know, I, I you know I had written a one shot for Siege with the Young Avengers, um, but I, I really wanted to kind of see the process of being involved in one of these big events like this, um, and and they had to they had to stop me from like trying to cram every last teen superhero in the whole thing. Like I wanted all the new warriors and all the I wanted the Runaways and I wanted this and I wanted this and they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I had to set, you know, settle for like 50 of them <laughs> with a core, you know, it was, a, it was actually a pretty good size, um, uh, cast in it because, you know, we had to have kind of the two warring sides, um, that are all, um, you know, the ones that are, well, they're all governed by fear at this point. Right. Um, and how, and how they just wind up kind of making a bad thing worse, um, because of you know, bickering and infighting and, and being afraid of, of all kinds of things. Um, and I don't remember how, how that worked out that Mike became involved. I mean, I, I'm sure I floated the idea to Mike and then, and then to Marvel. Um, but I can't remember like what he was working on around then that that happened. I think he was doing a lot of Marvel stuff still at the time. Like, 
he was doing well Mike can do like two books a month he's insane um, but he was doing some runaways here and there and I can't remember what else maybe that was when he was doing Green Arrow I don't but anyway um, yeah um, you know I was able to get Mike on board and that was that meant a lot to me because I wanted you know I wanted the, if I could you know I wanted all the gravity stuff that I wrote to be with Mike because um, that, that was our guy you know so it was nice to nice to get him in and, and work on that Do you ever he hates a- drawing rubble so I put a lot of rubble in it <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, do you ever have any desire to ever come back to do more with Gravity? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, um, the next arc of, of Young Allies was going to be Gravity's real origin story, you know. Um, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't mind telling that story or any other story. Um, it'd be cool. With a character like Gravity, is it hard or like to to see what other people do with him? Like you, you created this character with Mike, and obviously he, he exists in the Marvel universe. Is it difficult to see what other writers may or may not put them through, or would you rather to see them used than not used at all? Like, how do you feel as a creator of that character? I'd rather see him used than not used at all. But um, you know, I've both Mike and I have seen like a couple of one-off appearances where he gets used. Um, to make the the main hero of the title look good, you know, he's kind of used as a as like a punk or a joke or you know somebody for the villain to defeat. Um, which you know, and, and, and you know, he doesn't have the same voice. That you know, that's something that is definitely going to be more of a bugaboo of mine than Mike's. Because um, you know, I mean, you create a character that voice is in your head. Um, and so anybody, you know, is going to get it exactly right. And I'm mostly forgiving, but sometimes it was like, uh, you know, but there was some really cool stuff. Um, Jeff Parker wrote this, uh, uh, Avenger story in Marvel holiday special that had, uh, gravity, um, trying to get into the Avengers mansion for the Christmas party, but like, he's not invited. <laughs> um, but, but then, uh, uh, Ultron, who is Santa Claus, called Santron, comes to uh, foil the Avengers, and Gravity helps save the day. Um, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, I mean, there's uh, you know what Dwayne McDuffie did with the character, um, which you know I'm I'm forever grateful for. Uh, he was um, so uh, Dwayne McDuffie was was given Gravity in the miniseries Beyond um, to kill him. Um, because the plan was at the time that, uh, so gravity was going to die at the end of that miniseries, sacrificing himself for everybody else. Um, and then he was going to, uh, come back, um, in civil war, but as captain Marvel. And, uh, okay. and that wound up not happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, and so I'm like, well, what's happening in Beyond? Oh, we're still killing him. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. <laughs> but uh, but Dwayne had liked the character so much that when he was writing Fantastic Four, he went out of the way to bring him back to life. And he had this great story in there where, where Gravity was he was set to become the next protector of the universe, like uh, Quasar was. Um, and and they hatched him out early, and he had like this uber power, and, uh, and it was a really cool way to bring him back. And you know he. he he spent all that extra power, and so he was kind of back to square one again. Um, 
it, which was kind of funny to me and Mike because like the idea with gravity was always like was like he, you know he's always going to be kind of like the the newbie character for a long time but now he's like he's already died and come back to life you know it's, <laughs> it's almost like a meta commentary on my purpose of the original miniseries that you know everything you expect to happen is not going to happen <laughs> but uh, uh, so yeah I, I was really grateful to Dwayne for putting him in Fantastic Four that was super cool um, uh, Dan Slots had him in, in Amazing here and there I saw and that was that was neat um, but yeah I mean I, I would you know, I mean, he's out there. Go play with him. Uh, you know, put him out in enough books that they make an action figure, and I get a check. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, Don't kill him like Justin. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, going to current work. So you have a, a new book, uh, Outpost Zero, which just started coming out. I guess next last month. It's had two issues so far. Um, first of all, I, I love the, the two issues you have. Um, a lot of different emotions you bring out. That's for sure. Um, where did this Where did this book kind of come from? Where in the deep recesses of your mind, and where did you find the artist, and how did this kind of come into being? Sure. Well, uh, this was something I had started writing. Um, well, I mean, I first conceived it maybe about ten years ago, um, but I started working on this plot. Uh, in 2011, uh, it was a period where I didn't have any work uh, in comics at all. Couldn't find anything anywhere, um, and was you know living on credit cards and trying to get a job as a video game writer, which I eventually did. Um, but th- but this was the main thing that I worked on during that time, uh, just developing it for myself. You know, not sure where I'd pitch it or anything like that. Um, and so then I moved to, uh, from Ohio to Austin, Texas, where I am now, and uh, worked full-time for BioWare on their uh, Star Wars MMO, The Old Republic. Um, and, I did, and while I was doing that, um, I got uh, contacted by Sean Makowitz, who's at Skybound, uh, and he said he wanted me to do some, some stuff for them. Um, and so I, I pitched them one book that they didn't, wasn't their thing, and, and then this was the second pitch. Um, was for Outpost Zero, and they they liked it and they they bought it, and um, and so I started working on that in 2014, I guess, while I was still full time at Bioware, um, and uh, you know it took us a, a while to get up and running. Um, it took us a long time to to find uh, the right artist, um, you know, um, Alexander Tefenki, who's the artist on the book. Uh, he came to us via Cliff Chang, who had recommended him. Um, and and Alex uh, Tefenki, he does. He is mostly known for doing um, French albums, you know, Euro comics. Um, he's from Belgium. He lives in Vietnam now. Um, oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he just moved there uh, last year with his wife and kids. Or one kid? One kid. <laughs> um, sorry, Alex. Uh, but um, he, he was one of those artists where, you know, like we had probably gone through dozens of, of possible artists. And some, you know, I really liked and some Robert really liked, um, but not the other. And this was the first time where we were both like immediately, yes, um, and and so they reached out to him and, and brought him on board um, as a co-creator, and uh, that was last year. And and so we finally got uh, on the books um, 
you know, it, it was a long process, but uh, it's finally out there, and 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 people seem to be digging it. Well, it's interesting that it kind of it seems like it, it taps into a lot of what you kind of do best. With you have the younger characters kind of figuring out their place, but also uh, in a very kind of interesting kind of sci-fi backstory and backdrop, which is an interesting kind of way of pulling it together. Yeah, that's. I mean, really, what I wanted to do was at first I was calling it the waiting place in space. <laughs> like, like conceptually, I just I wanted to write something like the waiting place again, but I was like, well. If I give it something fantastical, um, you know, then that will give another dimension to it. Uh, but it, it's not what the story's about. Um, and I'm not a, like a high fantasy fan, so like I went for science fiction. Um, and so I wanted to just have these sort of fantastical science fiction elements um, and and mysteries built in, inside the you know the entire uh, structure of the story. Um, that that can also be a part of it, but the real showcase to me is is the character work and the relationships between them and what they're going through, um, which is really just the heightened version of 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 you know I mean it's it's basically you know hitting puberty and becoming adult at the same time you know um, and all and all the pressures of of the world on your shoulders you know almost literally. Um, and, and and so I, I wanted that real sort of pressure cooker feel to it, but at the same time I wanted it to feel like the waiting place. I wanted it to feel like a like a small town where you're spinning your wheels and you can't escape, you know. And and here, I mean, you definitely can't escape. You if you escape, you die. <laughs> No, oh, for sure. Well, and like the first issue, like I, uh, first of all, I, I really enjoyed it. But then at the end, like it definitely kind of turned things like on the wait, what just happened? <laughs> and then the second issue with the, kind of examining the fallout of that event in the first issue um, was really interesting and in kind of framing exactly what these characters are going to mean because of how they react to what happens. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I, um, I, I'd always wanted to tell a story that is entirely about, you know, about something like. Um, like the big chill, but, but not, not quite so, um, a little more narrowly focused, I guess, on like, you know, the story starts when somebody has just died and the story is, you know, entirely about what does that mean? What did that person mean to them? What does it mean to them now? What's their life going to be now? You know, and how do they, and how do they deal with death in general? You know, um, it was always a fascinating idea for me, and so the second issue is is about coping with death, and um, and really the whole series is about coping with you know uh, existential dread and anxiety and depression, which are all things that that occupy my mind quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's basically a big therapy session for me. <laughs> Well, I do like that. I mean, as you said, like you use a sci-fi backdrop, but it doesn't overtake the story. Like it, you know, the the drama is very personal and human. And even though it's set amongst this, you know, this again very sci-fi backdrop of you know something's you know they they could all die if they try to leave that kind of thing, and it's it's very dangerous. You don't you don't overly focus on the high sci-fi concepts. They just kind of live in the world, and that's where they operate. As opposed to taking the time to kind of focus too much on that, as opposed to the character. I think that's really what worked for me in the first two issues. Is that you know you get this sense of what's going on in the grander world, but you're not focused so much on it. You're focused on how the characters react to those things. Right. I mean, my entire approach to, 
to world building for this book was was pretty much what you just said. I, I want I want to um, I want to explain things to the reader when they need to know it because of the because of what the characters are going through. Um, it's not real often that you're going to see a lot of exposition in the book. Um, I try to make sure that. You know, it's it's impossible to avoid it completely, but I try to make sure that you know that as much of it as possible is contextual to what the characters are going through in that scene, um, and what what we might need to know to understand what's happening. You don't need to know how long they've been there, where they come from, where you know um, if anybody else is alive anywhere else, um, why they crashed, how they crashed. Uh, you know, like all that stuff is interesting, and I've actually I know all the answers, <laughs> um, but but you know you're not going to get it until you need it, um, and and that may frustrate people who who are more used to like like the whole world kind of being templated in front of them, kind of presented to them, you know. Uh, but I I, I kind of find that way. I don't know. I, I kind of find it uh, tedious, you know. Like when when you go into a movie and there's like a long bit of text up front. It's like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, show me. Don't you know? Show me about the world. And and you know, I, I, I like stories that that you know reveal things you know more subtly. You know, if they can. Um, and so that's that's what I'm trying to do here. How many issues does the series go for, or is there even a set amount? We're not, I mean, no, there's no set amount. I mean, I've written 14 issues. Um, um, Alex is currently uh, drawing number eight. I haven't, I haven't worked on the book in a year at this point uh, because I've been busy in video games. But, um, but there's been no, like, I didn't come into it saying, like, it's this many issues. Um, you know, there obviously there are, going to be different versions of how the story is told based on how well the book does and how many issues I get. Um, but there is a definitive ending. Sorry, there, there is a definitive ending? Yeah, yeah, there is. Someday. Hopefully very far yeah, from now. Yeah, I know I know what the, what the last uh, scene is and the last what the, exactly what the last two pages look like. So I have a question about that kind of thing, um, only because we've seen... TVs, TV shows in you know past years where you know people had a very set idea with how they wanted to end it, and then the show kind of changed throughout, and then maybe the ending didn't quite fit anymore. Do you are you completely locked into that ending, or do you see any situation where the story would kind of take on a life of its own, and then that ending wouldn't necessarily fit anymore? Oh, I'm absolutely open to that. I think I have to be, you know, because uh, you know, I mean, the thing with me with with writing. Um, the casts that I write is that, you know, there comes a point where they kind of become, you know, living things inside my head and, and they lead me to places or they tell them, like I try to force them places and, you know, it doesn't work. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's entirely possible. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm open to it, but, but right now, I mean, I, I know, I know what the point of the book is, um, and this is the best way for me to end the book with making that point. Um, and I don't see that changing, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always uh, keep my options open. Um, like when I wrote the, when I was writing the Onslaught Unleashed book, and, and Tom 
Revert recommended to me that I kill Nomad, which wasn't in the original uh, plans. And I thought about that, and I'm like, yeah, that makes actually a lot of sense. Um, I don't want to because I really love the character, um, but like that makes perfect sense for this story, you know, for her to for her to sacrifice herself. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm definitely open to it. Okay. Um, can you tease us uh, at all without Post Zero? What, what else can we look forward to in the next couple of issues? Um, so the next two issues finish out the first arc, um, and the last page of number four is going to have people talking. <laughs> uh, one of those kind of opening up a new can of mystery. Um, and, uh, and issue five, man, I can't wait for people to see issue five, which is the start of the second arc. And um, I wrote a song for it. Oh, really? Yeah, I wrote an original. I wrote lyrics to a song for it. Um, I, I can't. I mean, I can't write uh, music, but I wrote the lyrics for a song, and and I'm really excited for people to to see that issue. What is it like to considering how far ahead you wrote the the issues, and then how far already Alex is on deliver sorry delivering pages? What has that experience been like? Because again, you're way ahead of the game in terms of you know kind of issues that are banked, knowing how much of it is already done. I'm not used to it. I mean, it's it's been very weird, and I I grew very impatient and got kind of irritable with with the guys at Skybound, um, um, but. Uh, it, it's comforting, though, you know, now. Um, I'm so used to, you know, Marvel and DC where, you know, like the thing I said with Teen Titans, right? It's like, oh, you're writing this double-sized issue, and this is the story, and oh, it's, you know, weeks late already. Go. Um, <laughs> you know, um, or, or you know, being, you know, like being asked to write something that's already been solicited or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, um which only happened once, though. That was for a short story. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's usually like two, three months, and the story's out. You know, I've been, I've been writing, slowly writing this series for four years now, you know, and, uh, and so it's nice to finally see it out there. And I'm glad I just didn't over-polish it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Sean, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us today and talking about your work, and uh, I'm very excited to see more from Outpost Zero. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Thank you so much.